This is Arcadia Cast, brought to you by Camp Arcadia on the shores of beautiful Lake Michigan. Here you get to listen in on the stimulating lectures of thoughtful and engaging Christian leaders from across the country, like extended TED Talks from a Christian perspective. Today's talk is from Dr. Arthur Just, Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, Today is the Lord's Prayer, and today is where we see how prayer is petitionary. That the main thing we do in prayer is not necessarily bless God, although we do and it's important, or thank God, praise God, which we do and that's important. But the main thing we do, and really in many ways what Scott has been talking about, is that we ask God for things, we petition him. And Jesus understood that because the prayer that he teaches his disciples is a petitionary prayer. Now, there are a couple of things I'd like you to think about as we look at the Lord's Prayer. One is, and, and this is always a hard move for me, and maybe it is for you, I want you to think of the Lord's Prayer as not just a prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray, but that he himself prays. That Jesus teaches us the Lord's Prayer precisely because this is how he prays. And I think I suggested that at the very beginning of the... um, of our time together that, you know, Jesus was going off in private to prayer, to pray to his father, and, um, and somebody asked him, teach us to pray. You're going to see that when we look at, at Luke's gospel. And he, he says, this is, this is how you are to pray, and I think what's implied there is because this is how I pray. Now, sometimes it's hard to put yourself in the position of Jesus praying those petitions. But as we go through it, I want you to think about that. I want you to reflect on that a little bit. What that suggests is, and the Bible certainly says this, is that not only are your pastors praying for you and the people who love you praying for you, but most importantly, Jesus is praying for you. He is at the right hand of God interceding for you. That's Romans 8. Hebrews 7, Jesus lives to make intercession for us. And when we speak about how the Holy Spirit prays through us, we are speaking how Jesus prays through us. Because remember, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are inseparable. Where the Holy Spirit is, there is Jesus. So, in Romans 8, where it says, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, what that is suggesting, too, is that Jesus is praying through us by the Holy Spirit. And sometimes, and I think this is what is being suggested here, sometimes without words. I'm gonna paraphrase, was it St. Francis of Assisi Scott, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words? Okay, I would put it this way, pray to the Father, and if necessary, use words. Okay? Because sometimes we, we pray simply by not saying anything by just putting ourselves in the presence of God. And I think when we look at Jesus praying to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane, there is more than just what he said there, what he prayed to his father. 
One other thing about the use of the Lord's Prayer in the early Christian communities, and some of you may know this, but some of you may be surprised by this. In the early Christian church, somebody who was not a Christian, who was going to become a Christian, went through an extensive, extensive period of catechesis, some places as long as three years, which seems outrageous, but before they were baptized. During that time, they did not pray the Lord's Prayer. The prayer that our, our Lord gave us was given to them right at the end of their catechesis because the first time that they pray the Lord's Prayer is after they're baptized. And why is that? Because now they know who their Father is. Now they have been joined to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they can now say, as, as Paul says in Galatians, the Spirit entered into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. And I think what Paul is suggesting there, and I really think it's, it's probably true, is that as Christians came up out of the font having been baptized, the first thing they say is, Abba, Father, because now they know who their father is. So the Lord's Prayer was a baptismal prayer. It was given to the baptized. The other thing is the Lord's Prayer was always, or I should say almost always, included in the Eucharistic service. So you could not really celebrate the Eucharist without praying the Lord's Prayer in the context of the Lord's Supper. Now, it, it, it always surprises me when I go to a prayer service or a, any kind of service and we don't pray the Lord's Prayer. I think it's the, it's the one prayer we should always pray. When in doubt, pray the Lord's Prayer. And I, and I think we're going to see that perhaps as we, you know, look at it. And, and the thing about talking about the Lord's Prayer is everybody knows it. Everybody says it. But there, there's so much in the Lord's Prayer, it's astounding. Now, there are three versions of the Lord's Prayer. And I'll start with the one that we pray. Uh, can you see it there? Let us pray it. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I put in red here the petitions. Hallowed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Give, forgive, lead, deliver. Those are the petitions. And there you can see we are asking for things. I, I'm going to analyze parts of this later, but let's just stop here for a brief moment. Here is your greeting, who art in heaven. In a way, you can almost say that built into this greeting is the statement of motive. I, I didn't mention that before, but oftentimes that's the, the, the case. Lord God, Heavenly Father, who art merciful and holy. There's your statement of motive. You're praying because he's merciful and holy. So you can put this statement of motive. And here, it's our Father who is in heaven, the Heavenly Father, the one to, to whom we pray because he is the creator. He's the one who sent his son. He's the one who intercedes for us through the spirit and in the son. Um, hallowed be thy name puts us in the presence of holiness. This, this, this puts us in, ho in a holy place. 
I've talked enough about that already. Holy of holies, holy place. God is holy. Mary's womb is now the, 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 the temple. It's the ark because she bears in her body the holy one of God. I, I didn't mention this yesterday, but it, it always astounds me that the demons in Luke's gospel, and I think it's true of the other gospels, know who Jesus is better than human beings do. They know he's the son of God, that he's the savior. And most importantly, he's the holy one of God. You know, Have you come to destroy us, the first demon that Jesus casts out and Luke says, you know, have you come to just, you, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. When, when, when darkness, when evil is in the presence of holiness, there's destruction. That's why people are afraid of holiness. And, and we place ourselves with confidence now in, in the holiness of Jesus and what's, what's holy, his name. Scott talked a great deal about the name of Jesus. Read the book of Acts. Everything is about the name, the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus. Baptized in the name of Jesus, which means to be baptized in the Holy Trinity. What does it mean that his name is holy? His name is holy in us, as Luther says, because we are baptized in his name. We bear his name. His name is on our foreheads, you know. His, his name, in a sense, has been tattooed in us. Um, I'll get to the, 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 these petitions when I get to Luke here. Um, I do want to spend a moment talking about lead us not into temptation. I don't know if you've been monitoring our recent popes, you know, wanting to change that in the translations. Um, lead us not into temptation is a difficult thing. I mean, Luther, Scott and I were talking about this on the porch this morning, sort of self-corrected. God indeed tempts no one, you know, but we pray in this petition, you know. I mean, in, I think, I, I don't know, I don't have the mind of the Pope, but I think what the Pope wants to do is simply bring people to what the Spanish says. And the Spanish says, no nos dejas caer en la tentación. Do not allow us to fall into temptation. And I think that's the intent here. Lead us not into temptation is not to fall into temptation. Um, I'm going to talk about temptation when we get to the temptation of Jesus in the garden, but I will say this here. When we think of temptation, we usually think of sin, which certainly it is, and it's a huge temptation. But I think what Jesus has in mind is when he says, lead us not into temptation, he's talking about being tempted to fall away from God, being tempted to reject God, which is why these two petitions have to go together. Technically, this should be translated, but deliver us from the evil one, Satan. And Satan's the one who's leading us into temptation. That's what he did to Jesus. You know, and don't think that Jesus doesn't have in mind that his ministry began with temptations in the wilderness for 40 days. And in Luke's gospel, it says, you know, the Satan left him until an opportune time. And I think, you know, Satan certainly is, is, is going after Jesus all the way along. But the opportune time is in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's when, that's when Satan comes back with a vengeance. And it's a, it's a, it's a you know, a, a moment where, you know, and we'll discuss this when we look at that text, because we are. This is the moment where, you know, Jesus sort of, you know, take this cup from me, 
You know, Satan is tempting him there. Remember that the main thing that Satan was trying to do in the wilderness was to keep Jesus from the cross, to grab the glory now. You know, turn the stones into bread, throw yourself down in the temple. You can do it now. Just show your glory. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to die. You know, Satan got it right. He was really trying to do that. And Jesus, of course, triumphs over Satan by saying, no, I must go the way of Calvary. And then he turns his face and goes to Jerusalem. Uh, Satan's trying to do exactly the same thing in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's trying to keep him from going to the cross because he knows that's where it's going to be transacted. Justice is going to be transacted. That's where Satan is going to be, you know, finally triumphed. Dr. Jess. Yeah. I think you mentioned the Passion of Christ yesterday. I think that movie captures that very well, that scene. Yeah, it does. Uh, that, that Jesus is most vulnerable. Satan is there, right there. whispering. Yeah. But Jesus resolutely comes up and then steps yeah. on the head of... Yeah, the serpent. Yeah, no, it's a great scene. Um, I never used to cross myself at Deliver Us From Evil until I went to Siberia for nine years, worked with the seminary there, and I was completely convinced by their palpable understanding of the presence of Satan during their time as, as Christians under persecution in the Soviet Union that we should cross ourselves there. And so I have ever since then, you know, but deliver us from evil. And I'm, I'm surprised now how many people do that. And I, I recommend it. It's a good thing, you know, you know, the evil one. May the cross, and it, and it really puts you in the position to know that the temptation is to deny the cross, to, to grab for what we like to call a theology of glory. Now here is Matthew's version, and you can see it is so close to ours. This is where we essentially get it from. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now that's a little different, trespasses, debts. It's interesting that both in Matthew and Luke you have debts. Um, In the ancient world, you know, to forgive a debt was almost, you know, the greatest act of love you could do. And to, to be in debt, severe debt, was basically the end of your life. You'd be thrown into prison, and debtor's prison, how do you get out? How do you, how do you earn money to get out of debt? You're, you're, you're toast, unless somebody forgives your debt or somebody pays it off. So the notice of, of debt, and it's the other thing that's interesting, and, and I, this is really true in Luke, is how, and, and we, we could do an entire Arcadia on this, is how much Jesus is interested in the proper use of possessions, the proper use of money. And I think we can resonate with that. And so he uses the language, the financial language, in terms of, of a synonym for debts, for a synonym for sins by using debts. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, this is not part of the Lord's Prayer, but I included it because it shows you what Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount thinks is so important. And you can see how, as Lutherans, who kind of are known for our understanding of the forgiveness of sins, we come by it honestly. If you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, that's just simply 
a paraphrase of the petition in the Lord's Prayer and a bit of an interpretation, but it shows you how forgiveness is the center of this prayer. And I think Jesus in the Sermon on the Plain alerts us to that. Some of you have heard of the Didache. It's making a comeback. It's an ancient document. I date it. It's an apostolic document as far as I'm concerned. I think it was dated between 40 and 50. I think it comes out of Antioch. I think it's a church planting manual. I may even suggest to you that Barnabas and Paul contributed to it. You know that it has the Lord's Prayer. If you don't, now you do. Here it is. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done as in heaven, so on earth. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And here it is. For thine is the power and the glory forever. That's where we get that from. It's not in the Bible, but it's in the Didache. And that was added by the church early on to... um, to, you know, recommend to us that here you have, in good Jewish prayer, the the ending. So you have the beginning and the ending. And in in Matthew and Luke, there is no ending. And the Didache, which is a very Jewish document, said, we really need an ending here. And they put one on. I love it. So, I mean, thank you, Didache. Now, I've sort of centered my discussions with you in Luke. I want to talk about Luke. I preached on this Sunday, so I I already kind of gave you a little bit of my glimpse of this. But here's why I think it's important to look at Luke, because it is in Luke that we have this language of petitionary prayer. There are a number of words for prayer in Greek, but the one for petitionary prayer is the one that's used here. So it says, came to pass when Jesus was in a certain place offering petitions. He was doing his petitionary prayer. When he stopped, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to petition. Teach us how to petition. Just as John also taught his disciples. Now, this is something that we know. Every rabbi, like John, like Jesus, had their own petitionary prayer. John had a way of petitioning the Father. Okay, and, and Jesus' disciples knew that. And they wanted theirs. They wanted their rabbi's way of petitioning, you know, the Father. And that's why Jesus says here, he says to them, when you petition, this is what you say. So here's how you petition the Father. And as I said before, I think this is Jesus telling us, this is how I petition the Father. Okay. Now here it is in Luke, and it's the shorter prayer. Lord, let your name be sanctified. Excuse me, Father, let your name be sanctified. I think this word Father is so important. There's been some discussion as to whether, you know, it should be, it's intimate, it should be Daddy. Most of the scholars say, no, 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 it's not that intimate, okay? It's intimate, but it's Father. There is a distance, but, but not, but it's, it's endearing. Let your name be sanctified, made holy. So there it is, that, that's the same. And then if you remember the sermon on Sunday, if you were there, Luke puts together three things. Your kingdom, the bread, and the forgiveness of sins. And, I, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit more than I did in the sermon, because I think here you can see Luke is sort of giving us a window into how it is that we should understand 
what Jesus is after in the Lord's Prayer. And remember how I began. I began about saying how all prayer has to do with salvation. All prayer has to do with salvation. Now, the kingdom of God is a, is a slippery saying. I suggested in the sermon, and I always like to think of it this way, the kingdom of God has a king. A king is always coronated, and a king always has a crown. And when you think of Jesus as the king, you think of the sign over the cross, this is the king of the Jews, that this was his coronation, and that his crown is a crown of thorns. So the kingdom really kind of reaches its, its goal when Jesus is crucified. There is Jesus, the king. Now, it's completely counterintuitive. Um, when I was writing the commentary on Luke, Luke has what we call the eschatological perspective, which means I, where Jesus says, I shall not eat this, I shall not drink it until the kingdom of God comes, you know. So does he eat the Passover? Does he drink? You know, when does the kingdom come? For years, people said the kingdom comes at the end, you know, when Jesus returns in glory, the second coming. But almost to a person, in every commentary that's been written in the 20th and 21st century, the kingdom comes at the cross and the resurrection. That's when the kingdom comes. So Jesus eating and drinking with his disciples after the kingdom comes, I think is Emmaus, you know, on Easter evening, you know, and he ate and drank with them after he rose from the dead for the 40 days. So when, when Jesus says, let your kingdom come, I, I, I think he's saying, let, you know, let the kingdom that is embodied in the crucified and res- risen Lord come as people gather together around the king. You know? I think he's pointing us to the place where Jesus gives his gifts. Now, I, I, again, I suggested this in the sermon on Sunday that all of chapter 11, I'm not going to get into the second part about, you know, the guy knocking on the door and he finally gives in to him. And, you know, th- th- it's all about giving of the gifts. And that's what the Lord's Prayer is about. These are, these are the gifts that Jesus gives. And the first gift that Jesus gives after his name is hallowed is his kingdom. You know, I, I, I like to think of when I enter into the church, I'm entering into the kingdom of God. This is where I'm going to receive the gifts. This is where the king is. This is where I receive the gifts of his kingdom, the, the fruit of his passion and resurrection. The next one is one of the most controversial one among Lutherans, our bread. And this is a literal translation of Luke, and he does a little bit more here than the other ones. Our bread for the coming day, keep giving to us day by day. Um, Luke Luke has the the word that only occurs in the the Gospels. The word, it's it's the word in Greek, epiousion. You know, and it's untranslatable. It doesn't occur anywhere else. And it's really... Usian is being, you know. What, what does this mean? We, we translate it daily, which it could be. Um, I did a lot of research on this. If you want to read it, you can read it in the commentary. Even Luther weighs in on this. And, and Luther, of course, thinks of it as concrete bread that we need to support this body and life. But that word epiusian can have all kinds of connotations. When Jesus says, you know, our bread for the coming day, keep giving to us, I think he's speaking of himself. 
He's the bread of life, you know? And think of the, the Lord's Supper when he takes bread, okay, ordinary daily bread to sustain our life, and he gives it to his disciples as his body. It is both physical and heavenly bread. It's both physical bread and it's bread that, you know, sustains us until he comes again in his glory. I think one of the other things that's important here to remember, and I've, again, I've said this here, but in a previous time, you know, in the Lord's Supper, you have bread and wine. Bread is the food of sin. There is no bread in paradise with Adam and Eve, because you got to work for bread. Okay, it takes the sweat of your brow. You got to plant it, the seed, you know, knead it, bake it, sweat, you know. So bread is the means by which he gives his body broken in death. And Jesus himself describes himself now as that bread which he gives for the life of the world, his body, himself, and that we are to eat and drink of it. And think of manna. Manna was tangible bread, you know, kept them alive in the wilderness. But it was heavenly, man. It came from heaven. It was a gift that was, you know, to sustain them through their time in the promised land. And only Luke has the, the, the notion of keep giving to us. You know, it's, 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 it's not a past tense. It's an ongoing tense. Keep giving it to us day after day after day. In many ways, when we think of the, the Jesus as the bread of heaven, we realize that it is in this bread that we receive the forgiveness of our sins. To commune with Jesus is to be joined to him, our flesh and his flesh, so that in that communion, we have everything that he gives. And, and Luther said it in his, in his small catechism, where, and I mentioned it before, where there's forgiveness, there's also life and salvation. I talked about salvation as rescue, talked about forgiveness as release. What is the life? The life of Christ. You get death over with. You, you die when you're joined to Christ in baptism, and you never die again. You, you will physically die, but that's just like back into a life that never ends. And I think when people are in the hospital, they're dying, they're sick, they're suffering, and you pray for their healing, you pray for the restoration of your health, and then you say, but it's according to your will. I think what we need to understand in that is that they've already died. They've gotten death over with. So if they don't make it through this, that's okay. They've died with Christ, they've been joined to him. And in baptism, they've already been healed and they've received the healing medicine of immortality in the Lord's Supper, and it's certainly in the preaching of the word. So they are already alive in Christ. They are already healed, and, and I think we have to help them to understand that. And those, you, if you've been with people who do understand that, there's a peace that passes no understanding. It's, a, it's an incredible sort of sense of, I have died. You know, I'm carrying in my body the death of Jesus. I am already healed eternally. And so if I die or if I don't get over this, it's okay. I am healed. I am whole. I am, I am in Christ. I bear in my body his life. We've talked about forgiveness. When the kingdom comes, there is the, the, the forgiveness of sins. If you think of the kingdom coming at the cross of Jesus, what's the first thing? This is in Luke. 
First thing he says from the cross at nine in the morning, probably, looks out over the whole crowd, and what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Okay? The last thing he says before he says, into your hands I commit my spirit, but the other word from the cross in Luke is also absolution, you know? Um, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Kingdom? And what does Jesus say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, that's, that's absolution. He's forgiving him there. He's saying, you're a dirty, rotten thief, but you've confessed your faith. You are, you are with me. Today, when I go to paradise, you are with me. And remember, that's one of the things to remember about paradise or heaven. It is to be with Jesus. And that's what he is given there. We already talked a, lot, a little bit about n- not bringing us into temptation. Again, I, I, I think this is the core of the Lord's Prayer, and I think it does always put us in the context of where we receive the gifts. I, I'm always thinking liturgically. I'm always thinking Eucharistically. I'm always thinking about how these things become concrete for us. I'm always thinking about how is God's name hallowed among us. It's when we call upon him in prayer and praise. And where do we do that as the body of Christ? It's when we gather together for worship. Okay, so Jesus praying in the garden. Pastor Ryan, I looked on your website for that beautiful stained glass over your altar of Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane, and I couldn't find it. <laughs> it was, and I did images of Trinity Arcadia. I, I thought of that when I was in church on Sunday, and I saw that there is Jesus. Is, I think it's Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. It's magnificent. It would have been a beautiful slide right now. I mean, <laughs> so, but all of you, when you go to church on Sunday or whatever, next time you're there, just think of it. And here's Jesus praying. Now, now here we are on the Mount of Olives, and, you know, there are 19, I just looked it up, 19 uses of the word pray as petitionary prayer. Three of them are in the Lord's Prayer, and four of them are here. So seven of them are here. And these are all, you know, keep petitioning. As he's petitioning, he was petitioning very fervently and rising up from his petitions. Actually, there's five of them. One, two, three, four. There's five of them. Sorry, not four. Um, Rise up, keep praying in order that you might not enter into temptation. I wanted to show you the chiasm, but it takes too long for me to format them, and I forgot to, but there is a chiasm here. It's a beautiful one, and, and it's interesting here. There's a simple one. He says, keep praying, keep praying, and in the middle here is the prayer that Jesus offers. So Jesus kind of command, instruction to do petitionary prayers is the frame for his own prayer to his Father. Now, a, a couple of things here. Th- this, this is um, a very important passage in all the Gospels, but in, in many ways, when you go and, and, and look in the Scriptures for places where Jesus fully identifies with us, it is here in his prayer to the Garden of Gethsemane that you can find that identification. I mean, when you think of things like loneliness, there's nobody who is more lonely than Jesus in this moment in the garden. I mean, he's alone. 
He knows what's ahead of him, and he goes to prayer with his father. Um, if you're looking for, you know, the notion of, of, of shame, being shamed, being sinned against, Jesus knows that he's about to become the most sinned against person that ever lived because he's going to bear in his body sins that he himself did not commit. He is going to get the worst temptation that anybody will ever have in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the temptation is to not fulfill what he had been set apart to fulfill by the Holy Spirit through the, the Father, or by the Father through the Holy Spirit. I got that wrong. But I mean the Trinitarian plan of salvation. And he's being faced with that reality. And of course, you know, one of the things that you can, can see here is that Jesus does what you should do when you are lonely and shamed, when you are, he's afraid of death, you know? He's afraid of death. Maybe not physical death, but he's afraid of what his death means. And um, I, I mean, I, I wonder that when he, you know, goes to pray, you know, um, whether he prays the Lord's Prayer, you know, or a, a, a variation of it from his own perspective here. I'm wondering if when he tells the disciples, keep praying, not to come into temptation, you know, that, that's almost word for word from the Lord's Prayer, that he's saying to them, remember that prayer I taught you? Remember when we were, you know, you asked me what to pray? Go pray it. Go pray it right now. That's what you should be praying. Um, I want to read you a little something from what a commentator said about that passage that came up the first day. That I hope I, I saved it here. I think I did. Um, oh, no, I didn't. Yes, I did. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I did, I did, I did. It's in a different place. Um, that, that I thought was really interesting the way he puts it here. Um, he, as, I, as I was commenting on the, the, may this cup pass from me, you know, you know if you're willing, take it from me. Um, the cup, of course, is the cup of suffering and death. That's what he's facing. And, and I think those of you who know literature, you might know um, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, you know, when Kurtz goes up into the, into the darkness and he looks over the edge and, you know, what does he say? The horror, the horror, because he sees the, the total depravity of, of humanity. I think that's what's happening to Jesus here. I think, I think Joseph Conrad knew that. I think that's why he says the horror, the horror. And I think what Jesus faces in the Garden of Gethsemane is the total darkness of our sin. What he has to face, the horror of it all. Now, I'm speculating there. And, 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 I, and th this, this commentator, who I'm, I greatly respect, says we should not speculate. But he says the passion is at the center of Jesus' petition. And what Jesus is requesting of the Father is that this appointed cup of destiny be removed. The whole purpose of Jesus' ministry and of the gospel is at stake in this request. But here's the important part. None of the evangelists indicate Jesus' motives. And the commentator goes on with a scathing analysis by saying countless orators and homilists bent on psychoanalyzing Jesus and his agony have sought to determine what has caused it. 
yet there is not one word in any of the Gospels as to what actually Jesus was thinking of when he did this. Um, and I think that's fair. I mean, that's one of the reasons I love the Gospels is they, you, you, you don't know always the, the psychology of it. It's just the, the flat words on the page. But what we can say is this. He is asking that the cup of suffering be removed. That's what he's asking. And yet, and this is, again, not in the, the Luke Lord's Prayer, but it's in the Matthew one and the Didache and in ours, you know, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think you see that, in a way, Luke knows that, and he puts it in, not my will, but may yours happen. Your will be done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the Father, Father who he's addressing in heaven, our Father who art in heaven, he's asking the Father in heaven that the will that, he, that they have sort of agreed upon, that he would give up his life for the life of the world, that even though he, he, he in, in, his, in the person of Jesus, divine and human nature, in his, his person as a human being, and he, he, can't, he can hardly imagine the horror that this is gonna be. He says, if this is your will in heaven, let it happen now on earth. Let this happen. And it is so intense that he needs an angel to appear from him in heaven to strengthen him. And I love this word, in agonia, you know, in agony. It doesn't mean just physical agony. This is the word that is used among the Greeks in the Hellenistic word for kind of the agony of running a marathon, the agony of the athletic contest, the agony that you go through in the battle, the struggle. You know, and, and one of the, I think, ways of, of looking at Jesus in Luke's gospel, and my colleague from the seminary, Peter Scare, wrote his doctoral thesis on this, and it, it's, it's just, I think, a wonderful way of thinking of it. Um, if you read Matthew's Passion and you read uh, Mark's Passion, and I'm setting up tomorrow, by the way, Mark's Passion, Jesus is kind of a kind of blithering mess. You know, he's just blah. He's, he's going through the passion, you know, beaten up, dragged around. I mean, he's, 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 in, he's a, a real broken person. And it's not that he doesn't experience those things in Luke, but Luke portrays him much more nobly. There's a noble death metaphor here. Or Jesus comes out of this confrontation with, with Satan where he's sweating drops of blood. And that's possible physically. Doctors, I do so much that it just, you know, and here's the first beginning of the atonement, the first shedding of blood. So intense. But when he's done with this, you watch Luke and in, in, you watch Jesus and Luke, and Jesus is this serene savior, completely in control. And he is noble. Now, why does Luke do that? Well, the argument of Peter Scarron, and I totally resonate with this. Jews would have understood Matthew's gospel being addressed to Jews, and Mark's maybe a little bit too, but Matthew especially, that somebody who goes through that martyrdom, which is what Jesus does as a Jew in crucifixion, it, it would have been a horrific suffering. 
But a Gentile would have been completely undone by the notion that the, the Messiah, the Savior, I mean, a Jew would too, don't get me wrong, but it would be even more difficult in converting a Gentile to the faith to, to see how this horrific shame, this horrific horror, this dishonor, this, this, this really humiliating death is, is your great Savior, your great leader. But they would understand a general who's going into a losing battle, going into it nobly, serenely, confident, even though he knows he's going to die, even though he knows he's going to be martyred. And, and Jesus is that. And we're going to see this tomorrow when we look at the Psalms. This is what the Psalms talk about. They talk about the suffering righteous one, that Jesus goes to his death, as I said, nobly, serenely, like a lamb being led to the slaughter. And he allows himself as the one who could call down angels as his disciples wanted to. You know, an angel does come here. But, you know, they want, you know and they, they, the disciples in Luke have the sword, you know, and, you know, and it's like absurd. He could have done that. I mean, he had the power to do that, but he didn't. He humbly went to his death. And why did he do that? because he places himself in the Father's hands in prayer. Prayer is what allowed Jesus to enter into his suffering with that noble, serene control. And I, I, I think it's remarkable how, as, as Jesus comes out of this, he, he comes out of it as somebody who is, is, is our suffering one. He's the one who has... has has gone a way that no one else can go who can be tempted beyond what any human being is able to be tempted, and as Hebrew says, without sin. And uh, he offers us this, this consolation that when we are tempted, when we go through terrible sufferings, when we have agony, you know, whether it be physical, spiritual, mental, you know, emotional, that, that like him, Put yourself in the hands of the Father and pray, if it be your will, take this cup from me, but not your will, not my will, but thy will be done. And I think Jesus shows us kind of what happens in prayer, you know? I mean, we oftentimes think, here's the Father and here's us. And when we pray, we want to bring the Father down to us, you know, and put him in, you know, here are our concerns, you come down, you know. And in a way he does. But I think more importantly, when we pray, what the Father does is he brings us up to where he is so that we can understand that whatever happens for us is his will for us. And that we have to somehow find a way by prayer, by faith, to wrap our minds around that. And when I pray, I always remember that that man in Mark's gospel, again, it's not in Luke, I wish it was, but that wonderful place where he says to Jesus, and you know it, I believe, help my unbelief, okay? And when I go in prayer, I go, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's what I'm asking in prayer, help my unbelief. And I think that's what lead us not in temptation means, help my unbelief. I don't believe you can help me, help me. Here are my petitions. And sometimes you don't have the words to say it. 
Okay, I have a minute. Any questions? Are you with me? Yes, sir. Isaac. He is distantly related to me. So this better be a good question, Isaac. Okay. <laughs> yeah, two. Oh, wow. So the first one, in the Lord's Prayer, when did the church change the word debts to trespass? Oh, yeah, yeah. And then the second question is, in the older or in the later manuscripts, does not in Matthew, is not the ending included? Yes, it is. It is. It's included. In, okay. I can... I can answer both questions. The first questions I will answer by saying, I don't know. Okay? <laughs> I mean, and I'm sure there is an answer, but I do not know the answer. Now, I could make one up, but I'm going to just tell you I don't know it. Okay? The second one is, the, the, there is manuscript evidence that um, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory was, you know, in the, the original text. But it's weak. It's weak. And I think the reason it's put in there is because the Didache had it. And that somebody, monk, came along and had been praying it and said, hey, we ought to put that in. Boom, and he did. So I think it's, it's weak. But I, I love the idea that when the church started praying the Lord's Prayer, it took the prayer from Matthew and added that ending because they knew that if it's going to be a real prayer in the church, a liturgical prayer, we've got to have an ending. So... Yes, Mark. The uh, non-translatable Greek word in the prayer. Epiusion. Uh, is it safe to assume is it that uh, Jesus would not have taught the prayer in Greek, but probably in Aramaic or Hebrew? Um, and if so, has there been any attempt by the commentators to evolve that word back to what it originally would Yeah, no, they have. And... Um, I, you know, it's, it's very likely that he, he might have done it in Aramaic, but you know, Mark, I'm a believer that in the Sermon on the Mount, when he was speaking there and he had all those people, he was speaking Greek. I do. So I think he gave it to them with that word. And I think when he gave them that word, he, I, I think he wanted us to see, I, I didn't go into this song and dance, but it's a word that has a multi-meanings, and, and words do. The language works that way. It has a number of different meanings, and the one meaning is the number of meanings. And I think it has a daily bread and a bread, you know, that is a spiritual bread. And I, I mean, I think you can take that to be even Eucharistic bread, but bread that, that gives life forever and ever and ever, which is what we want. So... It, it, I, I actually don't know if, the, if there's an Aramaic. I, I actually, and I just read my whole commentary in this morning, and I didn't mention that. So that doesn't mean that it doesn't, but I might have mentioned that if there was something significant on that. I think I would have at least. Okay, we're going to close. Oh, yes, ma'am. Earlier when you talked about um, that God doesn't lead us into temptation, um, but in the scriptures when it says the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Yes, it did. I understand that as like everything in my life comes through the hand of God and sometimes I'm in a troubled situation um, but it's something I have to learn that. Yeah. Yeah. So the temptation is there. Right. Yeah. Um, she said that in uh, the Gospels it says that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into temptation and that you know, in, in our lives, we are, you know, tempted, led into temptation, and that this is a place where we learn how to deal with that temptation. And I, I think that's very true. I couldn't, I wholeheartedly agree. I think you said it well. Yes. Maybe the subtle difference between 
testing versus temptation. Like maybe testing is is what the word of God to for the genuineness, but the tempting is not what God does. It's what Satan would do would be yeah. the tempting. I think that's not a, uh, and I mean, I think that's a decent distinction that we can be tested by God, and tempting is what happens when the devil gets involved. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really difficult section, and there's a lot that more that could be said about that, but I, I think the thing that we have to hold on is is that temptation is not sin, nor is testing. It's giving in to temptation, letting yourself be overcome by the testing. That's the sin. And that, that Jesus um, is tempted. He feels everything that we feel. He, he has, but the difference between him and us is it's without sin. Thank you for tuning in to Arcadia Cast, brought to you by Camp Arcadia, a Lutheran family resort and retreat center on the shores of beautiful Lake Michigan. For more episodes or to learn more about camp, please visit www.camp-arcadia.com.